Hebrews chapter 11, 23, ending at chapter 12, verses 3. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw him, saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he grew up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as for as of greater values than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking ahead of his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith the people passed through the Red Sea, as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell, after the people had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lion, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the, uh, the edge of the sword, whose weaknesses were turned into strength, and who became powerful in battle and rooted uh, foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released, so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put into prison. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the, uh, and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance. That's the rays marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is the word of God. My name's Phil. I'm one of the ministers here at Christchurch Mayfair. If you're here for the first time, let me add my welcome. Uh, keep your Bibles open. We've got some hard work to do um, working through these verses. We're going to pray and then we'll get straight to it. Father God, we ask for your help tonight. Uh, We long to know the truth about you. We don't want to be fools. We want the truth so that if we are to follow you, we would be building our lives on solid ground, uh, not on nonsense. And so we pray that you would give us discerning minds. And we pray also for soft hearts that are willing to listen to you. And we ask this by the power of your spirit and for the glory of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, what is the point of following Jesus? 
I mean, what does it actually get you? Cost-benefit analysis. <laughs> what, what do you get? Uh, five people got baptised today in church. Four of them came from homes which were not Christian, either atheist or Muslim families, and they decided they were going to switch horses mid-race. For those of you into <laughs> who spend too much time in betting shops, they uh, they decided to back a different horse halfway through their lives. They're now on God's side, so what should they expect? Uh, they've now got the creator of the entire universe. There are, I think, seven septillion stars in the universe. Seven septillion. Septillion's a number scientists make up when they lose count. (laughs) There are more grains of sand on the earth than there are stars in the universe. And there are more atoms in a grain of sand than there are grains of sand on the earth. And God made every single one of them. He's pretty powerful. What can they expect now that they're in his corner? Now that he is their father? Now that they can rely on his power, his resources? There are a lot of voices out there that give you different answers to that question. Um, especially those of you who call yourselves Christians. You probably know if you um, are that bored and look on the God channel that um, you find a lot of people would tell you that when you've got God in your corner, nothing can stop you. You see so many sports stars who, uh, who say, uh, God gave me the victory. And it's as if they're saying... Uh, nothing could stop me because God was on my side. You uh, find in Christian bookshops, the bestsellers, one of the best-selling Christian books of the last 10 years is Your Best Life Now, which is a book that basically says, with God in your corner, then the possibilities are limitless. His power is at your disposal and you should expect to see victory Joy, happiness, financial reward, relational satisfaction, everything going well. Because you've got the God of the universe in your corner. I guess amongst a group like us, not many of us quite buy it. Some of it just sounds so crass, to be perfectly honest. Um, And sometimes it sounds crass because... um, uh, many of us here are British, and we're just better at masking the naked materialism than some of those books and some of the God Channel preachers. We've got the same stuff going on in our hearts, we just don't say it quite so out loud. But others of us, we don't buy it, but actually there is a similar sort of thing going on. So we would never be so nakedly, you know, ugly in our desires is to say, I expect God to give me the marriage I want, the children I want, the house I want, the money I want. But if I ask you a different question, do you expect to see your friends come to know Jesus? Do you expect to be part of successful church plants that grow? Do you expect to see God do great things in our day? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Why? Well, because God is awesome and he's at work. What should we actually expect from life following God? And not just what, but when. When 
when do you expect life to make sense? When do you expect God to prove he is good? When do you expect everything to come together? You get awfully disappointed if you went to see the first Lord of the Rings film. Uh, my wife would say you just get awfully disappointed if you watch it full stop. Um, it's not really her sort of movie. But there are three Lord of the Rings films. And if you went to the first one and were expecting the ring of power that brings such evil and destruction to the world to be destroyed at the end of the first film, you'd be very disappointed at the end of the first one because it's not. Everything fails. There are three films. You've just got to wait for the third film. 35 hours later, it finally happens. <laughs> When's the final film as Christians? It's a very important question for us to work out the answer to. What is God promising us now? What can we expect from life now if we put our trust in God, our faith in God, if we follow him? Because if we get that wrong, if we're expecting to be in the third film or we're in the first film, then what do I do when the sickness doesn't heal? When the relationship doesn't come, when I don't get rich, I get bankrupt, what do I do? I, I get angry and bitter and disillusioned with God. It is very, very important that you and I understand what a life of faith should look like. So that we don't turn our backs on God because we think he's failed us. We've got to work out what has he promised and when has he promised it. And Hebrews 11 is a wonderful chapter because it models for us, it shows us what a life of faith looks like and therefore it helps us manage our expectations so we know what God has and hasn't promised. Uh, look at uh, verse 23. You did a 1 to 22 last week, so we're diving in at 23. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, so the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Now, in one sense, uh, these verses, they, they do summarize and continue what you were looking at last week in the first chunk of Hebrews 11. That is, faith is an active trust in God for things that are real but can't be seen and for things that have been promised but that we don't yet have. An active trust in God for things that are real but that we can't yet see and things he has promised, but we don't yet have. And one of the big things I just want to draw out of these verses, uh, because you have covered um, the, the idea of looking forward for, um, for things in the future last week. But one of the big things, as you step back at this point in the chapter and look, is that faith is not conceptual understanding. 
I think churches like ours often intellectualize faith accidentally. We don't mean to, but we just do. It's not that this chapter teaches us faith is dumb. You know, there's a box at the front of church. Please leave your brain here before coming into the service. Faith faith is not blind or irrational in the Bible. John 20, 31 makes crystal clear, as John explains, why does he write his gospel account? He says, these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing have life in his name. In other words, I think you need evidence before you put your trust in Jesus. That's what John is saying. It's what the Bible says throughout. Our minds need to be convinced. But the proof that your mind has been convinced is that you then do something about it. Faith, verse 23, hides the baby. Faith, verse 24, leaves Pharaoh's palace. Faith, verse 29, walks through the sea. Faith walks round the walls. Faith hides the spies. The uh, educational aside for tonight. The technical name for a tightrope walker is a funambulist. I kid you not, a funambulist. I'm great company at dinner parties. Uh, the greatest funambulist, the greatest uh, tightrope walker of all time was the, um, the little French guy Blondin. And on the 30th of June, 1859, he performed his greatest ever feat. On a 345-metre-long line, he walked across Niagara Falls. That is a fairly seriously impressive feat. And he did all sorts of nuts things for the next few days. So he stopped halfway along, pulled up a small stove, cooked an omelette on it, ate it. I mean, he was properly insane basically uh, and he uh, went with a wheelbarrow with 150 kilo weight on it walked along he did a handstand in the middle and at one point he has this 150 kilo weight in his wheelbarrow and he goes along and he gets to the end where all the crowds are and he says do you think i could take a human being in this wheelbarrow and they'll say yeah who's gonna get in <laughs> utter silence you see faith is not The, yeah, you can do it, Blondin. Faith is the getting in the wheelbarrow. Faith is not coming here on a Sunday and singing. Anybody can do that. Faith acts. Faith does. It's an active trust. So faith gives money to gospel work, even when I'm not sure how I can afford to... Faith's not stupid. I'm not saying you give £100,000 when you haven't got any money to eat. But faith trusts God, and so faith is obedient. Faith refuses to exaggerate when the boss wants me to, to get this contract. Faith refuses to lie, to cover for my boss, and I know it's not going to go well with him. Faith talks to my friends and the other students about Jesus even though, to be perfectly honest, I'm terrified of their response because I like people to like me. And I know they won't like me if I tell them about Jesus. And more than that, if I not just say I believe in him, but I want you to look into him too. Faith is an active trust in God. An active trust in God for real things that we can't see and promised things that we don't yet have. Well, uh, like most preachers, 
verse 32, what more shall I say? I don't have time. And then he carries on for another half a chapter. Um, And this section is perhaps the hardest section for us to, to get our heads around. And the hard thing to get our heads around is that it's really one section. Uh, We love the first bit, verse 32. What more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel and the prophets who, through faith, conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again, You could do well to go through the Bible, the Old Testament of the Bible this week and work out what each of those words and phrases is referring to. The amazing stories of what God achieved in the Old Testament. It is extraordinary when ordinary people trust the extraordinary God. You see amazing things and we want to be those people. We want to see revival. We want when we pray for sick people for there to be a miraculous healing. I mean, who doesn't want to see that? It's easy, in fact, to see why you would choose to follow God. If chapter 11 stopped here, you'd think, you'd be an absolute numpty not to follow this God. I mean, look what life goes like when you follow this God. The problem is, verse 35 carries on. Others were tortured and refused to be released so they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in caves and holes in the ground. The same faith... A very, very different outcome. But faith does both. Faith succeeds and faith fails. Faith raises to life and faith dies in agony. You see, faith is not a guarantee of success. It's a fundamental attitude of loyalty to God. Faith is not a guarantee of success. It's a fundamental attitude of loyalty to God that says, I will obey and I will trust whatever happens. That's faith. And this is the problem, is that I fear that sometimes we're so quick to marvel at uh, the greatness of God and the faith of the people involved when we hear a story about a friend who was seriously ill and people prayed and they're better and doctors can't explain it and we are excited and rightly so and we we get excited about their faith i just hope that we're every bit as excited about the faith of the person who suffers and it doesn't improve and weeks turn to months turn to years and they still cling to the belief that god is good even though they're in agony I hope we're as excited about that faith as we are about the faith that sees the miracle. You see, faith still trusts God because faith looks beyond this life to, verse 39, the world to come. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. 
God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Uh, Fourteen and a half years ago, by faith, a group of us um, gathered to pray about planting a new church in West London. And eventually, on the last Sunday in January, um, by faith, we were given a building in West London to start a new church. It's very exciting. By faith, we turned up, about 80 of us, on the first Sunday to find that the building, this building as it happened, was blocked. The previous tenants uh, decided they didn't want anybody else to have the building and there was a whole group of them at the door telling us where to go. By faith, we literally gathered on the street out there in the cold in January and prayed like crazy. And by faith, we scattered around Mayfair to find for free somewhere to meet at an hour's notice on a Sunday night. And by faith, the manager of the Four Seasons Hotel gave us their chandelier-lit, mirrored ballroom for the first meeting of our church. And by faith, the church flourished and grew. By faith, it's planted a number of other churches. By faith, we're here today. Faith can do amazing things. By faith, eight and a half years ago, a group of us um, gathered to pray about the starting of a new summer camp, like the ones that Rich has just been telling us about. And by faith, a new site was given to us to start a new camp. And then, just that summer before we were about to launch the new camp, the school said we can get more money if we rent it out to a foreign language um, study centre, so we don't want you anymore. By faith, we prayed like crazy. And by faith, God provided a a new venue, but it was 200 miles away. And half the kids couldn't make the camp because it was too far away. By faith, we prayed on. And the next year, yet another site fell through. And we had to change week and venue twice. And the camp folded because it was just too many of the kids couldn't make it. By faith, we tried. We prayed and we failed. Same faith. Same desire, very similar group of people, lots of them the same group of people, and one wonderful success, the other disappointing, to be perfectly honest, failure. But faith looks to God. Faith looks to God. We do not get to choose. We'd love to, wouldn't we? (laughs) Which bit of those verses would you choose to walk in if you could choose? We don't get to choose. Faith is not a way of guaranteeing success today or even tomorrow or even at any point in this life. Faith is a commitment of loyalty to God, however this life works out. And faith trusts that God is good when everything's smiling on me. And faith trusts that God is good when all my five senses are screaming out, this is just so wrong and this just doesn't make sense and this hurts and it's painful. But faith says God is good because faith looks beyond. Faith knows this is not the final chapter. See, the interesting thing is, uh, look at verse 39. These were all commended for their faith, yet, surely it should say, yet some of them, or only some of them received what had been promised. No, none of them. Even those who destroyed Jericho, even those who walked through the Red Sea, even those who, like the widow of Zarephath, received their child back to life, did not receive what was promised. 
Because what God has really promised is far greater than any of the idiotic preachers of the prosperity gospel talk about for this life. Far better than a a house and a country and a good marriage and shiny happy children. Far, far better than that is what God has promised. And so none of these guys who saw success really received the full promise of God. Because the final chapter is not about this world, this world which is full of sin and brokenness and difficulty. It couldn't be in this world. This world is not capable of being as good as what God has promised. But faith trusts God and faith looks forward to the final chapter, the final film in the better country which God is making and where God will one day take us. That is where faith looks Faith is waiting for the Lord Jesus to return. And faith doesn't expect the final chapter in this life. Well, the last thing from this section as we move on to 12, 1 to 3 is stop thinking about faith. You may be thinking, you know what? You sound a bit confusing. Or, I've never really needed to be told to stop thinking about a sermon. It's amazing. It's one of my spiritual gifts. It just comes naturally. You finish speaking and... It's gone. Trust me, I'm I'm really good at it. Uh, That's not what I mean. I would love for you to be thinking and discussing and praying and wrestling with what this means and how we can encourage each other in it. But don't be thinking about faith. That's not where the focus of your thinking should be after this service. You see, the problem is when we think about faith, we end up thinking about two things, the quality of our faith and the quantity of our faith. Or in other words, do I have good enough faith Or do I have enough faith? And the Bible almost never, ever looks at faith in that way, which is an odd thing. There are passages that encourage us to pray for more faith. But the Bible almost never analyzes it in that way. And it certainly doesn't here. Here there is faith in God and not faith in God. That's it. Why is that? It's pretty wise. (coughs) As soon as I think about my faith, the focus shifts away from God and shifts to me. And I'm thinking about, have I got enough faith? Is my faith good enough? Does my faith do things? Does, is my faith as good as her faith? And the old cliche is true. We don't need great faith in God. We just need faith in a great God. So stop thinking about faith. It's like an aeroplane. Um, I'm not a nervous flyer. I simply don't have the imagination. I'm, and I have this blind trust. He's in a uniform. He's got some grey hair. He looks trustworthy. It'll be fine. I have flown with other people who have to be medicated to get them on a plane. Um, and you don't want to sit next to them in turbulence because uh, they pretty much break your arm gripping it. You know what the amazing thing is? I'm no safer than they are. I don't get to the destination any more securely because I have great faith in the pilot and the plane. All you need is the basic faith to get on the plane. Pilot does the rest. What you need to know is, is the pilot reliable? Is the plane reliable? What we need to know is not, have I got enough faith? But who is Jesus? Can I trust in him? And so at the end of this passage, where does he take us? He takes us. 
to Jesus Christ. And we're told three things about the Lord Jesus as we fix our eyes on him. Therefore, verse 1, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so you will not grow weary and lose heart. Uh, quickly, the, the witnesses, they're not watching you. The, the entire cast of the Old Testament is not scrutinizing your life. Oh, what an idiot. My goodness, what are you doing? They're, that's not the sort of witnesses they are. That's not encouraging. That's just intimidating. Moses is watching me right now. She's great. Uh, that's not encouraging. What they are is they're witnesses. They're, they're the other side of the, the finishing line. They witness to us. You can make it. These idiots made it. So can you. That's what he's saying. You know, people who, who you know, Abraham twice lets another man basically take his, uh, his, his own wife as, and marry her because he just won't trust God to protect him. Gideon is such a complete wuss. You know, this great Gideon, the warrior. An angel of God comes down and consumes the dinner he makes with a burst of miraculous fire from the tip of his staff. And then when God says to Gideon, okay, it's time to get up and raise an army, he says, oh, I'm not really sure you're with me, God. Can I have a miraculous sign? Were you not at dinner, you muppet? And then the next day, he has to ask for another sign. And the next day, another one. He made it. If he can make it, you can make it. David, he has goodness knows how many wives, but hey, that's not enough. I like her, so I'm going to take her and I'm going to kill her husband. And yet in spite of the wickedness that still lived in his heart, somehow God kept him going. If he can make it, you can make it. That's what they testify to. They are witnesses on the other side of the line showing that we can make it. And he says, because they're all of these guys show you can make it, then you should do, verse 12, uh, chapter 12, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. There's a whole sermon in that. Uh, there was earlier this evening, funnily enough. Um, but the, the stuff which isn't illegal but is no, not helpful to you, whether that's uh, Facebook that just makes you discontent, alcohol that gets you in trouble, stuff that's not a sin, but frankly, when you mix it with yourself, it's a mess. We all know what we're talking about. Different things for each of us. Get rid of it. You're trying to run the race. And sin, sin entangles. It's got tentacles. It's never, sin never quite stays where it's meant to. It always grows, dominates, masters, infects. If we want to run the race, get rid of the sin and get rid of all the unhelpful things that even if they're not sinful, are just they're not going to help you keep going. And don't focus on the characters of the Old Testament. Don't focus on yourself. Focus on Jesus Christ. And three things about him for us to fix our eyes on. So remember, after this, we're not going to be thinking about, is my faith big enough? We're going to be thinking about, is the pilot reliable enough? What do we know about our pilot? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Firstly, the author. Secondly, the perfecter of faith. And thirdly, the example in faith. Very briefly, what are they? He's the author. He's the creator and the initiator. The final chapter in the story of your life was already written a long time ago. Like me, we all came into this world rejecting God. Abusing his goodness. Ignoring his kindness. Treating other people that he made in his image as there to be used or clambered over to get what we want. 
And so God built a great barrier between his perfection and our sinfulness. And eternally, we will end up on the other side of that barrier, dead forever, in what the Bible calls hell. But Jesus is the author of faith. He wrote a new final chapter. He entered the story and came and paid for our sins by dying on the cross. We didn't ask him to. We weren't begging for him to do it. We nailed him to a cross when he came down to the earth. But on the cross, he died to pay for our sins. He wrote a new ending to the story, smashing through the barrier so that the way is now open for you and me to come back to God in heaven. Jesus is the author of faith. He's also the perfecter. It's not that he's done a, you know, jerry-built half job that needs to be sorted out. It's that although Jesus has given us full forgiveness, a perfect status before God, we still live in messed up bodies in a messed up world. Look around the news. The world is not right yet. And even if the world was right, look inside your heart. If it's anything like mine, there's still more than enough selfishness and filth to merit us needing to have a confession at least every week in church, isn't there? He is the perfecter of faith, though. And one day, Jesus, who's already paid for our tickets to paradise, one day, he will bring us back. The flight is booked. Your name is on the ticket. And one day, he will bring us home. He will perfect what he's authored. And finally, he is the example. I think sometimes we get so hung up on Jesus being fully God that we forget he's also fully man. Not half God, half man, but fully God and fully man. That means Jesus was a real man. He was an ordinary man. Does that stick in your... Jesus? Yeah, he was an ordinary man. In one sense. But what I mean by that is that the man who resisted temptation to sin and never sinned once for every day of his life was an ordinary man with the same desires of you and me. When he saw all of his thousands of followers and his 12 closest friends melt away, desert and deny him in public, it was a real man who said, no, I'm still going to die to save this lot. As he knelt to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane and all his friends couldn't even stay awake that one night to pray with him. And everything was silent and he could have just got up and walked away to safety and missed all the pain that was to come. It was a real man who decided to stay there. And when he was being beaten with rods and stripped naked and spat on and nailed to a cross, and he had the power as God to just annihilate the entire world and stop physical reality, and instead chose to stay there and hang there in agony, paying for sin. It was a real man who kept refusing to use his divine power because he wanted to save us. And so when God calls us to live by faith, to obey, to follow, he's not asking us to do something he hasn't done. Jesus is our example, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. And that's what we're called to do. For the joy set before us of an eternity in paradise with Jesus. Scorn the shame that comes with following Jesus. Endure the difficulties that will be yours and will be mine. Jesus shows, the Old Testament characters show it is possible to live a life of faith trusting God. 
But he also shows us it's not for now. Jesus' life doesn't get resolution. Jesus doesn't get healing and justice and wealth in this life. If God is only to be judged on what things look like in this life, then you'd have to look at Jesus' life and conclude God is unjust, wicked, and amoral. But this life is not the end of the story. And Jesus is now reigning in heaven in glory and majesty. He is the happiest, richest, healthiest being in all existence. And even now, he is writing the final chapter which goes on forever in our stories. And it's a chapter where we share in his happiness, his health and his wealth for all eternity. Learn the lessons of Hebrews 11. Don't expect the final chapter in this life. Don't build your hopes on this life. Don't be disappointed in God if you don't get the things that other people tell you you ought to have in this life. Because one day Jesus will return. And one day we will see and hear and taste and touch the goodness of God forever and ever and ever and ever. And in the meantime, keep running. Let me pray. Father God, we pray that you would enable us to live lives of faith, lives trusting in you. Father, please would we not fall for the sweet lies that tell us we can have everything now. Would we keep our eyes on a greater prize? Would we look to the Lord Jesus and see his willingness to suffer in this life for the joy that would follow? And would we walk in his cross-shaped footsteps all the way to heaven? And we thank you so much that unlike him, we do not walk it alone. We have a great cloud of witnesses to encourage us. And we have your Holy Spirit within us to spur us on. Amen.